Amen. Well, if you know the, the story of Popeye the Sailor Man, then you know that Popeye is a very reluctant hero, if you will. Popeye has major identity issues. Popeye uh, is able to accomplish great feats and is used to do great things, but he is forever in a battle within himself as to uh, what his, if he's really useful. If he's, if you spend any time as a child watching cartoons of Popeye, uh, then you remember that Popeye oftentimes goes into situations unsure that he's going to succeed, that he's going to be able to accomplish the things that he tries to do. He's almost as astonished as we are that uh, a simple can of spinach has such an effect on a person. And so the gospel, according to Popeye, is simply uh, summed up in the first uh, stanza of his theme song, which I am not going to sing, but I will read. And here's what Popeye says in his song. He says, you don't have to be a fish to tell when you're floundering. What I am or what am I? Some kind of barnacle on the dinghy of life. I ain't no doctors, and I know when I'm losing me patience. What am I? Some kind of judge or a lawyer? Oh, maybe not. But I know what laws suit me. What am I? I ain't no physicist, but I knows what matters. What am I? I'm Popeye the sailor. I am what I am, that I am what I am. Now here's my point for you. That will teach us a lot about being a Christian. See, here's what happens. We become a Christian, and then we endeavor into this life in which God's called us to. The problem is, is that there's all these cultural uh, pitfalls that are established within Christianity to, to goof us up and mess us up and put us off in the wrong direction. And the one that we are really dealing with right now is the one that says, now here's what we're going to do. We've become a Christian, and the goal of Christianity is to be Christ-like. Therefore, we're going to conform our behavior to that which is expected of Christians or even to that which uh, aligns ourselves with the behavior of Christ, which is an epic fail because it has no bearing upon the heart. And you cannot be, you can't grow in Christ's likeness externally only. It's impossible. And so what we're doing is we're really having a discussion about sanctification, but without getting complicated and trying to keep things simple, I really just want you to see that the next piece of this puzzle really is the gospel according to Popeye. Colossians chapter 3, you'll find that on page 1354, the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a copy of Scripture. A couple of these passages will appear on the screen so we can sort of get caught up to where we are. Remember, we began this journey by saying that really our launching point is going to be Philippians 2. 
We spent a lot of time talking about Philippians 2.12 and following where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but in my absence also, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And what we said was that we're... We are like farmers called to work in this field that we possess and that God has given us this divine field to, to reap all the benefits of the harvest that that field has the potential of producing in Christ. But that we're not to get out there working in our own strength and effort because Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And so you have to be born again to possess this divine field you to to work in this field to to be a, a farmer in this field to to reap the harvest of this field you have to understand that you don't work in your own strength and your own efforts but you work in these divine ways that we've been talking about and so we talked uh 2 weeks ago or two times ago about getting off the porch, about not sitting on the porch and just looking out at the field and going, "Well, come on field, grow something, grow something." That doesn't work. You have to get off the porch and get out there and do that. And so we used 2 Peter chapter 1 to show us the potential that we have in this field. And, and the Scripture says, as His divine power has been given to us, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great promises, precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And that just propelled us out and motivated us into we've got to get up off the porch and go out and start working this field. But before we jump out there and start working, we've got to make sure that we understand what we're talking about because it's not some external behavior modification because that's only going to fail. It's only going to fail. So last week we sort of put our first little um, block of execution on this, if you will, and we jumped into Colossians 3 and we really focused our attention on verses 9 and 10 where the Apostle Paul, after saying really 5 through 11, but 9 and 10 were preeminently where we were, uh, Paul says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man. He says, we put off the old man with his deeds, but we put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so we said that really our first practical application, our first, uh, our, our first step in going out and working in this field is to put on the garments of grace that we put these garments of grace on and realize that we now, we're not the old man, but we're going to put on these new new man garments of grace that we've been renewed in the knowledge according to the image of Him who created us. And, and so that propels us forward. And remember, um, we, we said that, that here's the problem with, with behavior modification. That it's going to be motivated by one of two things. Either we're going to uh, be motivated to be moral, motivated by fear. People will do good things because they fear God will uh, bring negative repercussions against them if they don't do good things. So they're out doing good things because they they don't want God to take away their blessing or they want God to bless them. But either way, they're afraid of the great big God in the sky with the big hammer who's going to smash them on the head because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And so the motivation for this moralism, if you will, is fear. The other camp 
is motivated by pride. They're the people that excel in rule following. And so they begin to follow rules, and they find that they're quite good at following rules. In fact, it really doesn't matter how good they are in following rules. All that matters is that they're better than some people. And once they realize they're better than some people, then they get puffed up with pride, and they continue to excel in rule following because they, they use that as a way to puff themselves up and say, well, I'm doing so good, I'm doing better than them, and I'm not the kind of person that does those sorts of things. And there's all these different ways in which we can expose the areas of our heart that may be susceptible to one of these two ways. For example, if you have a tendency to look grossly down upon certain sins that beset certain people, you have a pride issue. If there are certain things that you hold as far more atrocious than other things based on your own uh, scale of badness that has nothing to do with what the Bible says, you got a pride issue. Because what you're doing is you're saying, well, I would never act in that way. Well, yeah, but you act in some way. And I'm pretty sure that the Bible says that the way they're acting and that the way you act, when you sin and they sin, it's the same sin. Right? Now, come on, we need to amen this moment here because we want to... Right, that way I don't think I'm talking to a room filled with proud people, right? Yeah, so you don't want to do that. There's, a, there's, a, there's something, there's a little hitch in your heart somewhere if there's certain things that you just have no tolerance for. But then there's other sins. Well, they're not that bad. No, I mean, hello, yes, they are. And then fear. Fear. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ways that expose fear, especially if, if your response to, for example, if, 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 if good things happen to you that you attribute to God and you, and you think God's really, wow, God's really blessing me right now. And so your first response to God blessing you is to hurry up and start doing good things because you don't want those blessings to fade away or go away or be taken away. You got a fear issue. You got a fear issue. And, and both are horribly, horribly wrong. So here's what we said. Those two things are not our goal. Now, obviously, I'm not... Saying that, we come to Christ and remain the same. (laughs) Believe me, that's not what I'm saying. And nobody wants you and your behavior to conform into the image of the behavior of Christ more than me. Because when you act poorly, I'm the one that has to deal with it. So it would make my life a whole lot easier if we all just go through a big behavior modification program. But I'm smart enough to know what the Bible says and that simply won't work. And I can tell you there's whole churches and denominations built on that and it is an absolute catastrophe. What I want to see is gospel-centered change. I want to see transformation from the inside out. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want in your life. That's what you want. So what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like as far as morality goes, as far as, uh, as, far as your behavior. When we act morally in genuine, true virtue, it's not because it profits us or makes us feel better. But we do what's right because we are overwhelmed, or as Jonathan Edwards puts it, smitten by the beauty of God who is the truth. 
You see, when you and I respond to the truth that we know, simply because our hearts are smitten by the beauty of God, that's gospel transformation. And so what happens is when we open the Bible and begin to read the New Testament, what we find is that the gospel obliterates these two problems. See, in order for us to be motivated by pride or motivated by fear, one thing has to be present in our life, and that is we have got to have a misunderstanding of the gospel because the gospel will solve those problems. It's like I said this morning in my starting point class. I said, listen, uh, make no mistake about it. Uh, it's, it's common. It's common for uh, people to doubt their salvation, to come to seasons of their life where they question, am I saved? What's going on? Or, but, but also make no doubt about it that, that to doubt your salvation, to be unaware of where you are in Christ is a misunderstanding of the gospel. That the gospel is designed to give you and me certainty as to who we are and where we are in God. That is, I mean, if anything's going to be clear tonight, it's going to be that. You see, when we misunderstand the gospel, we open the door for all sorts of problems. All sorts of problems. So when I say that my, one of my favorite quotes of all times is A.W. Tozer, who says, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. I love that statement. But do you know what that statement means? The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. What that statement means, it's just a fancy way of saying the most important thing about you is how you interpret the gospel. That's all it is. And it really is the most important thing about you because it will determine everything about your life. It will determine everything about what your life looks like, who you become in Christ. Everything about you will be determined by that. So you can see why I'm such a fanatic about certain things. There's just moments in my life where I want so desperately to keep my mouth shut, but it's just impossible. It's when somebody says to me, oh, I love my church. I found this great church and we just love it. And I go, really? Tell me about it. And they go, well, the preaching's not that good. And I don't really understand what he's talking about. But man, the music. And I just think the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And if you are somewhere where you are not getting the pure nectar of the gospel, that is the highest crime of Christianity. It's the highest crime. I'm not to say that, you know, like I said this morning, worship is vitally important, but my goodness, the gospel has got to be the central thing. So we said last week that how the gospel destroys pride is that the gospel just simply reminds us, oh, by the way, your sin was so heinous, so bad, so grotesque that the Son of God had to die a horrible death. I think the, the way the song put it that we just read, that He crushed His Son. That's good to sing. You know that's good to sing? You know there's lots of churches that won't sing that song. They will not say that. He crushed his son. 
That's good for your heart to hear. It's good. That's how bad our sin is. So there's no room for pride here. Because he crushed his son. So I got nothing to be proud of. But at the same time, it destroys fear. Because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So if he endured the cross for my salvation, then what in the world would I be afraid of? I mean, if that's not security, I don't know what is. That's that's what you call putting all your eggs in one basket. That's what that is. That's a 100% guarantee that if you're in Christ, everything's going to be okay. And I mean everything that matters. Everything that's eternal, everything that, everything is going to be okay. Because he proved that on Calvary. So what we're going to do this, this evening is we're going to look at the first four verses of Colossians 3. Now I know to some of you that might seem, well wait a minute, now we were just in 5 through 11, now we're moving, that's right, because trust me, this way, uh, is the way we need to do this so you're able to follow with me. If we'd have done it the other way, we'd have been so tangled around and confused. So this is why we're doing it this way. Okay? Okay, good. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the believers in the church at Colossae. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Oh, that's good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us now, Lord, to, to, to peer deeply into the magnificence and the majesty of what's before us. God, thank you for the pure, perfect gift of your word. And Lord, we ask that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would work powerfully in us to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might be conformed further tonight into the Lord Jesus' character and nature. For your glory, amen. Okay, so here's the big question. The big question is, what does this mean? When Paul says, Christ who is our life. Because what I'm saying is, is that here we are. We, we've recognized that we've received this divine field in which we're going to farm and to work. And we've, we've recognized that we've received all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we realize the potential of this field is unlimited as far as what God needs to give us to do this. And then we realize that we're going to get up off the porch and we're going to go forth, not in our own effort or energy, but we're going to put on the, the clothes of righteousness and we're going to, of, of grace. We're going to be clothed in his grace and we're going to go forward. But here's the, here's the, the key. The key to, to everything that we've said thus far, to, to moving forward, is that we've got to understand what Paul means by Christ who is our life. And the way to do this is to think practically for a moment about what you would say if I didn't know you and I met you and I said, what is your life? It'd be a fun game. Because we could have so much fun talking about the things that you would say 
in response to that question. Because I know what they are. Because I know what I would say. I know what we say. You know what we do? When somebody who doesn't know us, they don't know us, they just ask a blanket question about us like, well, who are you? What are you all about? What's your story? We answer with areas of our life where we find acceptance or success. So you think for a moment. Who are you? What's your story? What are you about? And here's what I'm saying. What you'll do and what I'll do is we'll respond to that question. We define ourselves. It's just almost instinctive. We define ourselves by acceptance and success. Not success in anyone else's eyes. Success according to our own grid. So in other words, a person who thinks that they have a very uh, amazing family, for example. If I ask a mom who has, you know, these children and she's so proud of them and she thinks they're spectacular and they're the greatest kids in the world, which they probably are, and, and, all, and I say, well, who are you? Then she's going to say, I am a mom. I'm so-and-so's mom and so-and-so's mom. Because that's an area of success for her. That's an area of, of definition for her. That's a place where she finds and she's going to, a man who is very successful in his career is going to, is going to explain his story, who, who he is based on his career. He's going to say, I'm a stockbroker or I'm a this or I'm a that because that's what I do. I mean, that's how I define myself because that's how we answer that question. You ever notice that? Well, what's happening? Now, now, understand, I'm trying to answer the question, what does this mean, Christ who is our life? And what happens if I ask the same question to somebody who doesn't feel successful or accepted anywhere in their life? What do they say to me? They say, I'm a nobody. My life is garbage. I'm hopeless and I don't matter. Now, isn't it interesting that what determines what our life is, in essence, is our perceived success or acceptance? And if you spend time around people as I do who are at their perceived rock bottom. They never say, never say, I'm so-and-so's mom. Nope. When they perceive their family to be a disaster, they don't say that. Or they say it negatively, I'm a horrible mom. Or I'm a horrible dad. Or I'm a failure at everything I try. Or I'm a And so that's why we're about to have the discussion we're about to have because there's a gospel according to Popeye that we better be sure of because let me tell you something, you better not go out in that field unless you know who you are. You better know who you are. You better know how to answer this question. 
Because if you don't, you're going to get out there and you're going to start working. And it's going to be in your own strength. And it's not going to be what God's called you to do. And it's going to be monotonous and it's going to be a grind and it's going to be... Haven't you ever... Don't you ever wonder how... Why is it for some people the Christian life is such a drain? It's such a drag. It's such a, it's such a, a burden. I mean, how is it that same people professing salvation in the same God, and I can have this conversation over here, and it's just like, Pastor, I just, I try to read my Bible. I just can't do it. You know, I try to pray. I just can't pray. I, I, I try to do this. I try. I mean, I just can't do it. I mean, no matter how hard I try, it's just a fail. Then on this side over here, there's some of you in this room. I know you. You know when you pout. You pout when you don't get to read your Bible. You you whine when you go on vacation and you miss church. Now how 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 is that the same God? You gotta know who you are. The person who cannot wait to get their hands on the Bible. Who, whose prayer is, God, just give me 15 minutes of peace so that I can open up your word. Just give me 15 minutes. And when that 15 minutes is up, it's like, oh... It's like getting to the bottom of that ice cream sundae. You're like, man. So to understand how to answer this, oh, we gotta, we, we gotta, we gotta know what Paul's saying when he says, "Well, if you've been raised with Christ, if your life is hidden, if it, if it's hidden with Christ in God, we gotta figure this out. If we're gonna understand any of this, we're gonna have to understand." one specific term tonight, and that term is righteousness. Because it's the key to understanding all of it. So all of what I've been telling you so far is really just a, I'm just baiting you in. I'm just making you interested. Because if I stood up here and said, okay, let's talk about righteousness, you'd all fall asleep. Because you'd think, oh, I know that. I got that. Righteousness is something that according to Scripture, you don't want to be ignorant about. I think a lot of people are ignorant about what righteousness is. I think people got a wrong idea about it. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 10. These verses will come up. Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says this, Brethren, listen closely or read closely what he says. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This is Paul's desire. And notice what he says. For I bear witness that what? That they have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. That cannot be good. 
They have zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Very important issue. They have zeal for God. But they don't know what righteousness is. They're ignorant according to the knowledge. You see, here's what what we think. Most people think that righteousness is purity. That righteousness is morality. That is not what righteousness is. It's way, way, way more than that and way, way, way better than that. To understand righteousness, you have to understand that there is no understanding of righteousness apart from the context of relationship. The word righteousness means to be right with someone. You cannot achieve righteousness apart from relationship because you can't be right with someone unless... Someone is there. Unless you're in relationship with someone. You have to think about righteousness as righteousness is to be welcomed in. It's to be invited in. It's to find, it's to find favor with someone. So it's not just conforming externally to the restrictions. That's not righteousness. That's moralism. Righteousness is conforming in such a way that the one who makes the requirements invites you in. It's satisfying the requirements of the one who deems who can and cannot be righteous. You understand? Maybe this will help you. The opposite of righteousness is not sinfulness. The opposite of righteousness is rejection. The opposite of righteousness is Matthew chapter 7 Verse 23, when Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the opposite of righteousness. Righteousness is welcome into my kingdom, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. That's righteousness. If you want to know how to achieve righteousness, that's how you achieve righteousness. When you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, that's the same thing as saying, well done, one who is righteous. It's relational, 100%. So, for example, in the Old Testament, when the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me in the robe of righteousness. That's what righteousness is. But you see, the problem is is that 
from an Old Testament perspective, if all we, we have is the Old Covenant, we read that, we go, I, we don't understand that. How can that be? For thousands of years, people read that and thought, what? How can that be? How can He cover me in a robe of righteousness? How can He clothe me in garments of salvation? You see, to be clothed in righteousness is it's like what we sang when we said, once your enemy, now seated at your table. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus explains this issue of righteousness for us. He says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a certain king. A certain king who had uh, arranged a marriage for his son. Now you know the story. Now this king decides he's going to have a marriage for his son. He's going to throw this big feast. And so he sends his servants out into the, into the village. And he says, I want you to go out into all the places. I want you to invite everybody to come and partake of this big celebration. The wedding feast of my son. And so the, they go out and they do as they're told. And then the king, he slaughters the, the, the fatted calf and he, he prepares all the animals. He gets everything prepared, but there's no one there. There's no one there. And so here's what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 8. So he says to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They didn't come. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. He says, so those servants went out into the highways, and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, here's the righteousness part. But when the king came in, when he walked into the banquet hall, when he walked into the great feast, when he walked into the great wedding supper, he saw a man there who did not have on his wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what does that teach us? You got to think. Think. So, these guests were compelled to come, the ones who actually arrive. They were compelled to come after the feast was ready. So, clearly, if you are invited to my house, if I call you up and say, hey, where are you? And you're like, I'm driving up Highway 49. I say, hey, swing by my house. We got some pot roast. <laughs> Amen. We don't, but I like some. <laughs> then that... With that invitation comes this automatic understanding that you come as you are. Clearly, you're not going to go home and put on your pot roast coat. Right? Right. Because you don't have time because it's ready. 
So what about this man who shows up and is not wearing the wedding garb? Who gives the the wedding clothes? The king. When you come up to the banquet, before you enter in, the king puts on the wedding clothes. He gives you what you need to enter. But then the king comes in and he sees one who's wearing the wrong clothes. Now, now you've got to think here. How come no one else noticed that he was wearing the wrong clothes? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've showed up in the wrong clothes before. And it was obvious. I mean, you show up to a Halloween party and you're the only one in a costume, it's going to be a little awkward. It's a black tie event and you roll up in your wranglers and your boots, it's going to be a little awkward. Nobody seemed to notice this but the king. You know why? Because on the outside, he looked like everybody else. He had on his own wedding garments. So everyone thought, well, he's wearing wedding garments just like we are. But the king discerns, no, those aren't mine. Those are yours. Those aren't allowed in here. Now, what did the prophet Isaiah say? For he, capital H, he clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You don't cover you with righteousness. You don't put on the clothes of salvation. He does that. They're not your clothes. They're his clothes. Who put them on you? He did. You didn't have them. You needed them, but he put them on. You come to the feast. You don't have. The only thing you have is the invitation. But everything you need to enter, he gives you. So everything you need to step off that porch and get out in that field and start working, He gives you. You don't put on your own robe. You do, you're going to be in trouble. The danger is, is that, you know what? For the most part, all of us, we can't tell the difference. Your robe... Looks kind of like my robe. But you can't fool the king. The second he hits the door, he says, Hey, how'd he get in here? You see, the imagery of the story that Jesus is telling is you don't identify. Your life is not your external identifiers. That's not who you are. You're not so-and-so's mom. You're not so-and-so's wife. You're not such-and-such a successful businessman. You're not so-and-so from here who does so-and-so what. That's You might think you are, but that's not who you are. If your life is in Christ, you're not identified by external things. The king issues what you need to enter in. And so then the parable ends with just a simple statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? 
Many, many, many people are invited to come to the banquet. But only a few respond. It's a free banquet. It's a banquet beyond your wildest imagination. Many, many, many are invited. The servants just walk up and down the street. Hey, there's a banquet. You want to come? Do you want to come? You can come. You can come. You're good. You're bad. You're tall. You're short. You're this. You're that. You can come. You can come. You can come. To the greatest banquet you could ever imagine, but only a few come. So let's don't deceive ourselves. Let's don't do that. Let's understand what righteousness is. Because it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing to misinterpret righteousness. Very dangerous. So, because of this danger, this danger that we feel inside to identify ourselves with a place of acceptance or a place of success, what do we do? We have to develop these places for us to achieve, for us to matter, for us to find worth, for us to find value. And so that's why identity is not a big issue for the most part when you're young. You see, because when you're young, it really doesn't matter what your scale is or what your grid is. You just say, well, I'm young and I'm getting there, right? But when you get old, when you get like us, when you get like me, you get like you, pressure's on now. Because, see, if you haven't made it, you got a problem because you're running out of time. So either you're going to slip into guilt or you got to change your grid. You got to restructure. You got to come up with a new definition of who you are. And so maybe you used to be somebody's mom, but now you're, you know, so and so's nanny. Maybe you used to work at such and such a place, but now you're, you know, a really good craftsman. You had to change it because the the clock's ticking, time's running out. Let me be practical with you for a second. You grow up in a household where Mom and dad, there's an unwritten rule. See, you know what the unwritten rules are in your home. You know what they were when you were growing up. You, no one even has to say it. You know what they are. You know the expectations. You know the level of success. So you grow up in a home where education is paramount. The most important thing about you is you're going to succeed educationally. If you don't get a college degree, you are an utter failure in this household. And so you know what that does? That begins to define you. Because either one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to fail to get a college education and you're going to go into guilt. I'm a failure. 
I've failed. I can never overcome the mistakes I've made in my past. Therefore, you sit on the porch and you don't go out and work because in the past I, I, didn't, I didn't go to college and I should have went to college and everyone else went to college and I could have, but I should have, but I didn't, so I couldn't. And so you just the guilt just riddles you up and it just eats you a lot. Or you do go to college and you graduate from college and everything's great and you think your life is so wonderful. You think, oh, I've made it. I can rest. And then you get a job. And you start getting paid. And instead of being filled with guilt, you get filled with anxiety. You know why? Because you now have to hang on to this job with everything you've got. Because if you lose the job, you lose everything you've worked for. That your identity is in the job. So the job begins to rule you. And so everything's about the job. And you're constantly worried about the job. I can't lose the job. I've got to, The job's the most important thing. And it's about the job. It's about the job. Because the job defines you. And so it's a no-win situation. Either you're going to be filled with guilt or you're going to be filled with anxiety. It's the young ladies that I talk to all the time. All the time. They're 17, 18, 20, 23, 24. And they grew up in a household where your value is that you get married. Marriage is a good thing. I happen to enjoy it quite much. But it's a very damning thing to teach your little girl that her value isn't getting married. Because you know what she does? She starts making the dumbest decisions that you could ever possibly make. She starts to be filled with anxiety. And as I'm talking to them and and the 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 pain of years of trying to be something so that I can lure in a mate is just heaped up on them like scales. And they say things to me like, I used to hear in my house, you know, you shouldn't dress that way or no one's ever going to marry you. You shouldn't act like that or no one will ever marry you. Hey, 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 don't eat that. Watch your figure or no one's going to marry you. And so they walk around like this ball of anxiety. You know what happens to them? They're a relational train wreck. Because when they do find a suitor, they sink their claws into them like Sasquatch. Because they're petrified of losing them because they've worked so hard to get them. And it's all because their value is based in getting married. So what was the 
What was the terminology in your home when you were growing up? I don't know. But I can tell you this. It's self-imposed righteousness. That's what it is. You see, because here's what I'm telling you. That that young lady believes that her righteousness is in getting married. That she's right when she's married. That, that person believes that when they graduate from college and get a good job, they're right. And if their righteousness is in those things, then if they ever get them, they die in anxiety. And if they don't get them, they drown in guilt. See, now you understand what I'm talking about. So Colossians 3, quickly, because now it's all going to make perfect sense because you're ready. Colossians 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ. He's not asking a question. This isn't a question. It's not rhetorical in nature and it's not a question. He's, he's saying, in essence, since you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Translation. If you were raised with Christ, if you were given a divine field to work in, if you are a possessor of salvation... That Paul says in Philippians 2, now you're to go work out in. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. So Paul says, Philippians 2, 13, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It, Paul doesn't say now, if you raised yourself in Christ. If you manage to work yourself up in Christ, that's not what he says. He says, if you were raised in Christ, Christ did the raising. You weren't even there. You weren't there when he blew the stone off the tomb. You weren't there when he burst forth in glorious light. He did it. So if you were raised with Christ... If you're going to work in this field, you've got to seek things that are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Huh. Interesting. So when we go out in this field and we start working in this field, what are we thinking about? We're not thinking about things on this earth. We're thinking about things above. We're not gauging. Uh, we're not worried about what other people are doing in their field. We're not concerned about what the world thinks our field ought to look like. We're thinking about heavenly things, what things are like above. And Paul says, for you died, you died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you don't need to rely on your own strength. You don't need to come up with your own external definition of righteousness to make sure that you're right or okay. I don't know. Here's how you know who you are. Here's the answer to who you are. 
Who are you? I'm dead. That's who I am. I'm dead. And I've been raised with Christ to newness of life. And now my life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm right. My righteousness is that I'm, my life is in God. So back to 2 Peter 1. We don't need to come up with our own righteousness. Why? Because His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We've already got all that. So when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now listen. The world doesn't recognize who you are right now. They're not throwing any parties for who you are. They're not saying, great job. Great job. You're doing a great job, Joe. It's good. Nobody's nobody's recognizing who Joe is out there in the world. Nobody comes up to him and says, you know... Is your life hidden in, in God? Have you been raised with Christ? They never have asked me that question. They're not saying, Jennifer and David, you're doing a fine job raising those wonderful children you have. They're not saying, you know, you, you must be raised with Christ. Uh, we can tell by the way you're raising your children. They don't say that. They don't recognize who you are right now. But Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, they will. See, when Christ who is your life appears, there's not going to be any question about who's wearing the right garment and who's wearing the wrong. Nobody when Christ appears, is going to look at you and say, hey, is that the right garment? You'll know. Instantaneously. Who you are will be so clearly defined in that moment. Now here's the point Paul's making. You and I have to go and work in the field as if it were that moment. That's who you are. That's who you are right now. He's saying past tense. He's saying he's declaring what already is. He doesn't say Christ is going to be your life. He says he he is your life. It's a present reality based on a past Occurrence. He is your life. Who are you? Christ is my life. Are you okay? I'm okay because He's okay. What are you doing? Whatever He wants me to do. How's it going? However He determines it's going to go. Well, what's going to happen? I don't know, but it's going to be okay. Well, I don't understand, but one day you will. 
So one more time. Romans chapter 10, 1 through 4. We don't want to be confused about righteousness. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have zeal for God. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What does that mean? That means they have lots of moralism. But they're behaving in a modified way that's not motivated by truth. It's motivated by context. It's motivated by culture. It's motivated by perception. It's motivated because that's what I'm supposed to do or that's the way it's supposed to be or that's the... They got zeal. They look good. But it's not based on knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Their problem is they're they're still saying who they are based on their own grid. They're trying to come into the banquet with their own clothes on, their own wedding garment, and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They've not submitted to the righteousness of God. And you know what that word submitted means? To understand it, I always say to myself, but they haven't surrendered. They haven't released themselves. They haven't just fallen backwards into the pool of God's grace. They're trying to churn it out in their own energy and effort. And Paul says they they haven't submitted. They haven't surrendered. They haven't they haven't rested in the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. What are we doing? Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Is there better news than that? So what are we doing? What are you doing? I want you to get out there and harvest. Harvest what the field that has been granted to you in salvation has the potential to produce. And don't you dare let guilt of failures of yesterday or anxiety of clinging to the nonsense of today keep you on the porch. And don't don't put on your own Garments and go out into the field. Put on His righteousness. Put on the, 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 the righteousness of the new man, of the new woman. And walk in the freedom that you're right. 
If you're saved, you're right with God. Why? Simply because Christ is the end of the law. I mean, you got to hold me back. Who said the Bible's boring? Why don't you just bow your heads right where you're sitting. Let's just have a word of prayer and a moment of silence. Father, we're just going to sit in this moment as a symbol of our surrender, of our submission, of our rest in your righteousness. God, in this moment, just peel away the layers of guilt that have beset my brothers and sisters because they failed at self-righteous endeavors. Father, strip away the anxiety that comes as we try to cling to our acceptance or our success in self-righteous desires. And Lord, free us to go forth into the field that you have divinely placed before us. That you have granted into our possession as heirs, as sons, as daughters, as an irrevocable covenant through the blood of your Son. Grant us the courage to just walk forward in rightness with you because of what he did. Father, may no external righteousness hinder your children any longer. Because you, Lord Jesus, are the end of the law. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you in your holy, magnificent name. Amen.